0: Stephanie Gilbert, so sure, thank you, Leslie. Um, I learned about the history of my family uh through my father was um a you know hobby historian, oh, and okay. he considered himself to have been the family historian, and so there was always a lot of conversation in our household about history and family history. And I would say that I I come from a long line of hobby historians in the family, people who are interested in the family genealogy. And so when we would be at family events, it was usual for that to be a topic of conversation. Um, Me being, of course, in the younger generation, I was coming up at a time when computers became popular and household items. And um, when, you know, websites like Ancestry.com became more popular, and I would say that goes back to, you know, I'm talking probably 25 years ago, started using that to document. I just became fascinated using technology to track history because it allowed me to see and I think this is what I found the most the most fascinating when I was able to start to download census records and other documents and actually see my ancestors and their signatures and what they had where they had lived and what they had been doing and who they were living with. It brought history to life for me. Before that, history was sort of an abstract comment com- context. It was conversational, but I, I had never seen it. I didn't really feel like I was connected to it. Once I uh, began to use technology to explore history and I could see the documentation, people became real to me and I wanted to know more. They have downloaded so many more documents. Now we've got access to um, enlist- military enlistment records. We've got access to phone books. We've got access to, um, you know, a lot more Information around people, um and it goes back even further. I've been able to find, and this is something that surprised me. I didn't think I would find records on people who had been enslaved. It is interesting for me to find um fugitive slave ads, I'll call it, and I don't like to call people slave; they were enslaved people, not slaves, but the term mm-hmm. is fugitive slave ads It's interesting to find those, see how people are. Um, depicted in those. So I find great interest when I find those ads because it gives me a a physical description of the person. It often describes how they speak, how they stand. Um, It's interesting to find when someone only has a first name and who might have a last name, right? And so when my, um, my one of my ancestors escaped from slavery. He was his fugitive slave ad included two other uh, freedom seekers. So he escaped with two other enslaved people. What their ad the the description for them, this is in the same ad, the description for them only had a first name. But he had a first name and a last name in the ad because his father had been a free man of color. He was a free black man. So I assume that that's why his last name was also used. And it also helped me make an assumption about the other two men, young men, they were teenagers, that escaped, um, that perhaps their fathers may have been enslaved or perhaps unknown. But mm. I also have a good number of original artifacts that were passed down through the family and some, quite frankly, that made their way out of the family that I had to go track down and buy oh. back. So the um one of the more interesting things that happened to us as a family is that and this is a lesson for so many of us, me included, you know, be careful what happens with your documents and make sure that people understand the value of what you have. We had uh an older relative who was the direct descendant of an ancestor who had been enslaved and who escaped and who was operating as an abolitionist and made quite a splash for himself and was in newspapers and traveling and and his his records were very well preserved. He did a great job of creating a scrapbook and he was he was corresponding with William Lloyd Garrison, and he was corresponding with Frederick Douglass. There are newspaper articles where Frederick Douglass actually stayed at his house, did all of this documentation, and it was in this scrapbook that made its way down through our family. So we're talking a scrapbook that was probably created in the 1860s, 1870s, maybe 1880s, and survived such that I have relatives that are alive today that say they saw the scrapbook when they were children, but the relative who had possession of the scrapbook uh, passed away and a clean out man, quote unquote, was hired to go to his house and clean out the house. Okay. Not, not, not a relative, but just someone that the family hired. And the clean out man apparently found the scrapbook, and other related material, recognized it for being of some historic value, packaged it up, took it to a flea market, then either sold it or gave it, I'm not sure, to a black memorabilia collector. That person then saved, researched the history, understood something about it, saved the information, and somehow wound up through that research connecting with a historian who was also researching this same ancestor, the one that had escaped slavery and was connected to Garrison and Douglas. And so this black memorabilia collector who now had this, had recovered this trash, right, which was the scrapbook, reached out to the historian and said, I've got some documentation on this person. But wouldn't give it to the historian, but just wanted to to make connect and learn more about this person because I've now got the scrapbook and other things. And so eventually, I connected with the historian, and the historian said to me, "Oh, I I know someone in Philadelphia who has your family papers." And I said, "My family doesn't have family papers. We're just you know we're just a basic family. It's not like we're anything special." And she said, "Oh, but you do. You have family papers." here's the name and number of the person that has them. So I made the connection and was able to validate, yes, indeed, we do have family papers. Not only was there a scrapbook, but there was a 52-page handwritten memoir that detailed an account of his life as as an enslaved person, detailed the escape, and detailed his life on the Underground Railroad, because the Underground Railroad doesn't stop when you hit freedom. The Underground Railroad protected. you know, they needed that protection all the way through until um, the rebellion, Civil War, and, and emancipation. Person um, had all of that. So they had the scrapbook, they had other documentation, they had the memoir. And I said, okay, well, you know, in my naivete, I said, well, I'm the Great, great granddaughter of that person. Can I have my stuff? And she said, No, Mm-mm. no, it's my stuff now. You know, and no, she was kind about it, but she essentially said, No, I'm not giving you any any of this. And I said, Well, it's my stuff, but it's our stuff. And she said, No, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do something with it. Um, she wanted to open a museum and put it in a museum. Okay. So, long story short, after many months. Of back and forth, and us getting to know each other, um, I wrote her a series of checks, and I put the checks in the mail. They were for a certain dollar amount for different things. I knew what she had at this point, so I wrote. For example, she had an original program of one of his performances, and it had the uh, the family's names, and it was a it was a big deal of performance up in Rhode Island. And she had the original that he had saved in the scrapbook. So I wrote her a check, and I said, if you send me that, you can cash this check. And I put the amount. And I wrote a check for the memoir, and I wrote another check. So I put all these checks in the mail, and I trusted her. So she was a trustworthy person. She wouldn't give me my stuff, but she was trustworthy. I sent her all the checks, and I said, if you ever decide to send me anything, you can cash the check for that item. Months went by, but eventually things started to arise and checks started to be cashed. Until I wound up with what I now believe to be the majority, maybe not all, but the majority of the items. Point: These items were a hundred and, you know, 130 years old, 140 years old. So, I had a an 80-plus-year-old relative who had some memory of being a child and seeing this scrapbook, so she knew it existed. She couldn't really remember what was in it, but she said it was a, like a prized possession of the family. When I did receive the memoir and I started to read it, I realized that I had seen a condensed version of the memoir. There was a 10-page version of it that was written by the granddaughter of this ancestor. And it was passed around the family, handwritten copies, you know, probably someone did this in the 60s or 70s. And my, I had received a, an original copy of that through my parents. So when I read the original memoir, 52 pages that I've now gotten from the the memorabilia collector, and I started to read the facts, I realized that I had already read some of this in a much shorter condensed version that a relative had rewritten. So it was interesting to be able to corroborate that this was real, right? This, this, She didn't make this up. I've seen this data corroborated through another ancestor who's now gone around. And then that, this goes back to what I was saying about making sure people know what you have Thank goodness we had someone who sat down and hand-wrote or rewrote this history, made I don't know how many copies, but I've seen at least two versions of it that she wrote and passed it around the family. Because other than that, I don't know that we would have known anything about this amazing family history and legacy I am unable to locate the dealer today. I lost touch with her. Um, So the last I spoke with her was probably six years ago. And uh, a couple of years ago, I attempted to outreach to her again just to check on her and uh, got no answer. Number was not off, but got no answer. I have driven out to where she lives, have since learned that her home was sold the museum, she owns, um she does own a storefront in Philadelphia, which was where she was going to host this museum. As far as I can tell, she still owns the storefront. So I don't know if she lived there, but she was a, she was an older lady. She was, you know, uh, um probably in her, in her late 70s or 80s at this point. So I'm concerned, but um have tried, spent a lot of time trying to find her and haven't been able to. I do do spend probably more time than my children want um, showing them, you know, they're adults now, but they've grown up in a household where this was always a topic. So showing them what we have. I do have a um, what I call a family history center in my home (laughs) where everything is organized. It's a, it's a walk-in closet um in a spare bedroom but it's a pretty big closet and I've outfitted it with shelving on three walls and it's full to the brim with um boxes of documentation because it, it's not just our family's documentation my family kept everything so um members of my family most notably my father and one of his sisters who's much older than he and his other sister she was a member of a significant number of black social organizations, and she kept everything. She kept all of her, her her club materials, meeting minutes, every invitation that she ever received. And so when you think about the history of black social clubs, and much of that originated in Philadelphia, it's amazing how many there were and to see the names and where events were being held and parties. And, and um, you know, they were college students at this time. And so she was also corresponding with people down in Howard, and there's a box full of letters of her correspondence back and forth with people her age who are at Howard University. And it's interesting to read their insights into what's happening because at this point it's, probably so she would have been born around 1920 and so at this point it's about 1930 38ish i guess and so um seeing their perspective on what they see happening in America and the dances that they're learning and um and she saves all of her correspondence not just from that period but also from much later Um, I also have letters and correspondence to the 1800s. And so um, it's interesting to see that perspective as well to read, which is not always easy to read their handwriting from the 1800s, but to see, you know, as African-Americans, as they're writing to each other, how do they feel about what's playing out in America? Um, How do they feel about um, Jim Crow? And, you know, sometimes their perspective is, is not all African-Americans had the same perspective on what was happening. You would think everyone was aligned, but they weren't necessarily. So there was a lot of debate that was going on amongst them between them. There was, so apparently Atlantic city, New Jersey was sort of a, um, it was a place where, you know, people from Philadelphia, African-Americans from Philadelphia would go in the summer some people had um, homes there or they would stay in rooming houses, but it was a, you know, it was like, a, it was a getaway. Um, but there's one letter that I read that apparently more and more African Americans were going into Atlantic city. And one friend, um, and I, I had to research who she was to learn that she was a friend of my great grandmother was unhappy that, you know there were so many black people she referred to. Now she's black, she's African American, but she was happy <laughs> that so many were starting to come to her summer enclave in Atlantic City, and so she had this letter that she wrote about, you know, to, you know, what's happening and it's loud and there's music, and so she wasn't she was just displeased with that. So it's interesting to see that evolution and how people were dealing with the changes um that were taking place through our communities. Okay. That's the perception or they were younger, right? So okay. she may have been older and perhaps owned a um a home down there. There was a there was a a, a rooming I will not to call it a rooming house because it was more like a I guess like a vacation uh place but not a not a hotel boarding house that was owned by a good friend of hers in Atlantic City and it was a place where African-Americans could go and enjoy themselves. And I got the sense that the crowd that was coming in was a lot younger. And okay. so, you know, bringing, bringing the party scene that she didn't appreciate. I had an unfortunate thing happen though. I had a a book that I inherited from my grandmother and um, now I'm going to, I'm going to forget the name of the book. Oh, it was a, a colored woman in a, in a white world. Um, okay. and that book was written by, um, a friend. Mary Church Terrell was a friend. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. she had a home in Maryland. Uh, and my grandmother and grandfather would spend some of their summers down there with, Mary Church Terrell. My my grandmother was very good friends with Phyllis. Phyllis was one of her best friends, and that was Mary Church Terrell's daughter. Such that my my father called Phyllis Aunt Phyllis. That's how close they were. So she, so Mary Church Terrell's book, "A Colored Woman in a White World," was autographed to my grandmother as a Christmas present. So it's Mary Church Terrell wrote in the book. Signed it Phyllis wrote in the book, you know, Merry Christmas, Helen. And so it was a treasure. So I inherited the book. And a relative who was a Delta, right, <laughs> you know, which was founded, at least in part, by Mary Church Terrell was here. And she said, oh, do you mind if I take it home? I want to show my sorority sister. <laughs> I let her take the book home. I have not seen the book since. And everyone claims they can't find the book. And it's so disappointing because it, it wasn't, it wasn't just an autographed book. It was her gift. It was a gift to my grandmother. It was a Christmas present from, you know, her, her best friend. And the family had taken such, such, you know, painstaking efforts to pass it down. And now it seemingly is gone, which I don't know how you lose a whole book, but yes, it's gone. I would feel better if it were a natural disaster because then at least I would know what happened to it. Right. Really good stories around artifacts that I have found and collected. Leslie one one more recent story and this one's only three years old. Okay. I have my 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 father's again, this older sister who was you know, saved everything. She She passed away, and her son um, kept the kept the. Well, her son had been taking care of her at home, and she just got to the point she was in her 90s, and she had to leave home and go live with her grandson. And the house fell into a bit of disrepair, unfortunately, and eventually he decided to sell it. And he told me he was going to sell the, the house was going to be sold within the next like 48 hours. Yeah. And he had he was cleaning it all out, and then you know I had already had my scrapbook experience, so yeah. I said, "Listen, there are things that I saw my father give because I I had inherited my grandfather's house, and when I inherited my grandfather's house, all his stuff was still in it, and my parents and my aunt, my aunts cleaned out the garage one day." And I saw this aunt take certain things that were very meaningful to me. For example, my grandfather was in World War One. By the way, he passed as a white man to go into war. I don't know why you would pass to go fight, but he did. He passed. <laughs> if you don't want me if you don't want me to fight for you, I'm good. Right? <laughs> I'm good. I don't have to risk my life if you if I have to pass it to do it. But he did. He passed as a white man. Entered World War I, went to France, and he corresponded from France with his wife. And there were stacks of letters tied with ribbons, stacks and stacks and stacks from him in World War I. saw them in a box, and I watched my father hand them to my aunt, who took, took them away. And I've always thought, I wonder where the letters are. Right. I really want the letters. Because I was very close to my grandfather, and so um, when my cousin told me, you know, he was getting ready to sell the house, I said, "Did you ever find the letters?" And he said, "I don't know what you're talking about." So there's there's the stacks and stacks of letters, and so I asked, "Could I come down to the house and just check and see if there's anything I might want?" Big house down in Rittenhouse Square, four stories tall. So I go down. Mm-hmm, I go down. And most of the house had been cleaned out. But in the top of her bedroom closet, she had these boxes that looked like um, adult diapers, like depends, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we're like moving things. We're moving things to like check the back of the, she was very fastidious, only shopped at Von Wood Keller and Nan Duskin and all these very high end. You know, she, she was, not a wealthy woman, but she was a woman who only dressed in the best, right, and, and really took care of herself. Very fastidious. And so we're moving. I know these letters have to be some, here somewhere. So I go to move this what looks like adult diapers, and the thing was moved. It was so heavy. She put it in this. Could barely lift it to pull it down. We finally got it down. Not only did we find all the letters wrapped in this burlap and hidden in this box that looked like diapers, but we found a massive coin collection. That's That's the weight. That was the weight. And she had stuffed the coins into coffee cans and then put the coffee cans in the diaper thing and wrapped. Coin collection was interesting, but what was even more interesting was I went into her late husband's office. And, again, the house is, like, really, you know, not in great shape, so I'm unsure about the, the the sturdiness of the floor, so I can't go and get too much. But he had a – her husband was a major realtor in the city. And he had his own office in the house, and he had these drawers. And I opened the drawer, and I just grabbed files. I said, I'm, I don't even have time to go through this. I'm just going to package all this stuff up in the trash bag and take it home and figure it out when I get there. If it's trash, I'll throw it away. So I get home with the files, and one of the file folders was a relative suing my aunt because she said she couldn't find the coin collection. <laughs> And they wanted the coin collection, and she wrote back and said, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, I am hoping I'm not getting anybody in trouble right now, but I got the coin collection, (laughs) and it's mine. But (laughs) sure enough, she had responded that she didn't know what they were talking about with this coin selection. And I said, oh, okay. So, you know, what you would think of as a normal lay person conducting Genealogical research on their family. I was using websites and, you know, software based solutions and building a family tree and also having conversations, interviewing older relatives on what they knew or had heard. So the oral history could be preserved and uh, documented with. Photographs that I was collecting and uh, a significant amount of paperwork that my family had saved and passed down over the years, and just making sure that that was organized and preserved in some way. So, after I started to have those conversations, uh, it became apparent that there was some interesting history that had been documented, perhaps not all proven out, but at least documented. And then I started to put that together, and that led me to understand um, the history and the family around um, slavery, enslavement, escape from slavery, so freedom-seeking, and then underground railroad abolitionist activities that followed.